0: Today, we are going to step things back a little bit. We've had a couple of pretty intense episodes read, so today we're going to delve into a little bit of fantasy. Before we get started, though, I really have a question I have to ask. Would you rather go to Sunday school or Hogwarts? For that matter, would you rather read the Bible or dig into a deep mystery that? has not been solved for 2,000 years? Would you rather date somebody whom could be the one, or would you rather spend an evening with Christian Gray? Today on Into the Wardrobe, we're going to talk about Christians and fantasy and how they use their literature, controversial though it may be. Welcome to Into the Wardrobe.
1: Hey, we're back, and this is Stephanie, and we're going to investigate um, literature in the pop culture sense. We have been investigating many different things in today's world, kind of through a literary lens of C.S. Lewis, where he takes his literature, and there's deeper meanings. And if we ever read the Narnia series or any of his Christian apologetics, it's not just meant for enjoyment, but it's meant to reflect upon your own life and your vocation as a Christian. So Joe and I thought it'd be kind of fun to take some books in today's pop culture that have maybe been New York Times bestsellers and look at the opposite of not just, are they a fantastic story to sit down and enjoy, but also discussing the controversy that has arisen because of some of these very famous books. So we're going to investigate Dan Brown's series, the Harry Potter series, and also the famous Fifty Shades of Grey.
0: This is actually a really timely talk for us because one of the courses I teach at the high school level is a Christian apologetics course, and this week we had been looking at the concept of the Gnostic Gospels, which become kind of a main element to Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, that caused so much controversy a couple of years back. Now, I don't want to spend too much time getting into the concept of a Gnostic Gospel, but essentially there were a number of of accounts of Jesus that were written hundreds of years after he lived. I like to compare them to fan fiction. And and in them, Jesus does some really crazy and wild stuff, brings one boy back to life after he falls off a roof and is playing with clay pigeons, uh, literally making pigeons out of clay and then touches them and makes them come to life and all kinds of fun things. But they're not based on any kind of eyewitness connection like the canonical Gospels that that we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gnostic Gospels are, of course, named after different people in the life of Jesus, the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel according to Judas, or Mary Magdalene, or St. Peter. But again, they were written hundreds of years after these people had already died. Well, the reason I bring this up is because these Gnostic writings become a major part of Dan Brown's famous book, The Da Vinci Code wherein the main character, a man by the name of Robert Langdon, who's a symbiologist from Harvard, I believe, finds himself embroiled in a mystery. And as they unwind the mystery, there is a lot of articulation that these Gnostic Gospels had been hidden by the church as kind of a power move against a dualistic view of the masculine and feminine aspect of God. And they come to discover that... Jesus and Mary Magdalene had children and on down the line as they deal with the legend of the Holy Grail. Now, it's fun literature. So why bring it into the classroom? Because it made such a stir so many years ago, and by so many, I mean maybe a decade. And the reason for that isn't really that it was fiction, but the fact that Dan Brown, on the very introduction page before you get into the story, makes a claim that all of the information he used to compile the book is absolutely true. So while he's very clear that the book itself is a work of fiction, he claims that all of the historical groundings are legitimate historical matters. And and they're not really. I realize there's a lot of debate, and so I'm just kind of throwing down the gauntlet by saying that. But there is no legitimate, historical, evidential reality to back up a lot of the things that make the novel kind of interesting, particularly that Jesus and Mary Magdalene get married, they have children, etc. This is all simply false. And yet, as my students and I were looking at these different elements as we were talking about how does this impact Christian faith, we, we were watching a video on the Da Vinci Code and watching a selection from it. And Dr. Paul Meyer, who is a professor of history at Western Michigan University up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, talked about the fact that he had a student who had once made the claim, well, we know Christianity isn't true because the Da Vinci Code proved that. And we see across the board numerous accounts of people who are looking at this fictional story, the Da Vinci Code, and they're taking it as quite literally gospel truth. And so we find ourselves asking, is this something appropriate that Christians need to be reading to to be involved in, whether it's because you're searching for the truth or because you're just looking for a fun kind of pseudo Indiana Jones type adventure. So that's where we are on our first controversial piece of literature today.
1: Joe, you went into a great example of explaining how students see this and they think it's it's legit it's not a thriller fiction based it's it is a fun story about robert langdon discovering who murdered who and going on ways to discover you know the lineage of jesus christ however when i was first exposed to this it was when the dan brown series. i think they have sold over 200 million copies and are printed in 52 languages And this goes through the Robert Langdon's being the Harvard professor and he goes through and searches and begins to, it seems to have like an anti-Christian feel to it. I've read Angels and Demons and Da Vinci Code and I actually loved them. I sat down and I read them through very, very fast. However, being 18 years old when I read it, it definitely threw me for a loop because I had not been educated on the Gnostic gospel. So when I'm reading it, it really kind of shook me. I went to the movies. And I saw it and I came out of there and I had a lot of questions because all of Dan Brown's arguments seemed very legit of, oh my gosh, have I been taught something false my entire life? And here my father is a minister and I'm a pastor's kid and I'm questioning something based on... The gospel of Thomas. Now we look back and we kind of smile at that because we know that now after doing research, you know, the gospel of Thomas is written 200 years after Christ and is not based on eyewitness accounts, which I explain to my students when I teach apologetics at an eighth grade level. However, it definitely shakes you up when you're not secure in your faith and you don't know your facts. And I thought I knew my facts because I was raised in the church and I have an expert father. But another thing that I think Dan Brown does very interesting, especially in Angels and Demons and *The Da Vinci Code, which are the first two in the series of Robert Langdon, is the main antagonist is not obvious at first. But as you begin to read, you realize that the antagonist maybe has interesting motivations. Their motivations are they're very faithful people. And they believe that if they cause a controversy of some sort... The Christian faith will come together based on that controversy. So in Angels and Demons, you have a spoiler alert if you haven't read it or seen the movie. The Pope's right-hand man chooses to make a terrorist attack upon the Vatican in hopes that everyone will see the Vatican being attacked and he will be able to save the day and be made Pope and the Christian church will be united through this controversy. In the Da Vinci Code, you have this crazy albino monk who chooses to whip himself and make himself go through harm so he can feel closer to Christ. And then he ends up trying to expose these people who are trying to prove the Gnostic Gospels are true in hopes that he can bring the church closer in controversy. So it's not just we're using Christian motifs throughout the book, but they're making the Christian character the antagonist because he's hoping through some kind of horrible, tragic moment. That we can stop and take a moment and reevaluate what is important in life.
0: Now, Stephanie, I had a slightly different reaction when I read the book because by that time I had already had the opportunity to do quite a bit of research on the Gnostic Gospels at a graduate level. So I'd had a chance to explore uh, what are called, for example, the Nag Hammadi texts, which are some of the Gospel texts that had been discovered in Awadi in Egypt back in the 20th century. And, and so I had already encountered some of these things, but I did have to do some digging and some research to start seeing some of the connections. On a deeper level, I had to do some research into the Knights Templar to see how the historical records lined up with the Da Vinci Code. I will tell you that when I was in Spain just a couple of years ago, one of my favorite experiences is as we were taking students to some of the different churches, one of the small chapels we went to was a chapel that had been founded by the Knights Templar on their way to a crusade or from a crusade and was said to even house a relic, a piece of the cross. And so, of course, it was called Veracruz Chapel, True Cross Chapel. And it was neat to actually see the symbiology of the Knights Templar. And you can't help but think about the fun of a Dan Brown book there. But I do think it's interesting that Dan Brown does not seem to come out and be overtly anti-Christian. However, I can see how his very writing and the way it's taken has come off that way regardless of his intent. To be fair to Dan Brown, this makes him a little bit different than, say, a Robert Pullman who writes the Golden Compass series. And Pullman very clearly articulates That he wants to do essentially for atheism what C.S. Lewis did for Christianity with the Chronicles of Narnia. So I don't think Dan Brown's in that same boat. What I do find interesting is Dan Brown's own account of his religious wrestling. He talks about being raised as an Episcopalian and being a very religious kid as he's getting into his junior high middle school years. He starts getting into astronomy and cosmology and the origins of the universe and asks a pastor about the discrepancy between uh, the Big Bang and the Bible claiming that God created heavens and earth and that there was a seven day creation. I think this is a wonderful and fair question to ask. However, the answer he reports getting makes me want to go back on the Bonhoeffer episode and smack this pastor just a little bit. But he he reports being told, nice boys don't ask that question. And he says a light went off. The Bible doesn't make sense. Science makes much more sense to me. And I just gravitated away from religion. What a horrible shame that it's an unthinking pastor of God who pushed him away from faith. And unfortunately, I have encountered students like this. They generally tend to be very bright students who are asking deeper questions than maybe some of their teachers are capable of handling. And they get brushed off with these very useless answers but what's really interesting is the nature of his question because just a hundred years ago uh, when cosmologists were coming to the recognition of the evidence of the big bang that caused a major disturbance in cosmology the study of the origins of the universe because that flew in the face of what was basically accepted to be true which namely was that the universe was eternal. And so when the Big Bang Theory mathematically holds the weight, now the cosmologists are wrestling with the reality that the universe had a beginning, and it would seem to be something from outside the universe itself has to be the thing giving birth to the universe. And hey, look, the universe was created in a great big light so that the Big Bang Theory actually matches up to some degree kind of nicely with the very first verses of Genesis God said, let there be light, and there was light.
1: So here we have Dan Brown being a young man who has a very wide imagination. He is at a higher level thinking, and he's just asking universal questions that we probably have all pondered and either asked someone who we see as a role model Or we, you know, kept to ourselves because we were embarrassed that we would get a very similar response than he did. Now, Dan Brown probably did not purposely mean to try to stir up controversy with his series. We also see the author J.K. Rowling, who is, from all accounts, appears to be a Christian who probably didn't mean to stir up as much controversy as came, at least in America, when the Harry Potter series came out. The Harry Potter series had sold over 500 million copies and is known for being the best-selling book series in all of history. It's been translated in 73 languages, and the last four books have set consecutive records of selling faster than any history every single time. And it also says the final installment sold roughly 11 million copies in the United States within 24 hours. And I know because I was at the release party for book four through seven. So... Here we are diving now into one of my favorite book series, the one that helped me become a reader, Harry Potter. My first exposure to Harry Potter was probably not what you expect. I wasn't the girl who had her best friend recommend it, and I chose to actually read it and sat down right in one day. I actually actively boycotted it for that reason, because everyone was reading Harry Potter. It was not for a religious reason. I just didn't want to follow the mainstream. Well, at this time, I was living in a very diverse community, And our school encouraged, a public school, for the students to read it so much that they had a Harry Potter day. and Every single teacher of a subject had to create a Harry Potter lesson that went somehow with the theme of the first book. And after having a lot of fun that day and playing scooter quidditch in gym, I decided, okay, I'll give this book a chance. And I actually fell in love with it. However, within the next year, I moved four hours west, and I encountered a completely different attitude to Harry Potter, where I am now in the Bible Belt. And I was actually frowned upon as a religious person reading Harry Potter because of things like the school's name, Hogwarts, the school of wizardry and witchcraft, and that they go to a dark arts class. And many other things of, if you read Harry Potter, you are obviously an active member of the Wiccan religion.
0: I, too, enjoyed the Harry Potter series. Now, I don't know that I got into it the way a lot of people did. And in part, by the time Harry Potter came out, I was a responsible working man with two little kids. So I didn't get to go to the 12 o'clock midnight openings at the bookstore, which actually did sound a little bit like fun. Other than the main characters, I don't know a whole lot of them. I do know that as of right now, the girl who played Ginny Weasley will be coming to the St. Louis Comic-Con, so that'll be kind of cool. But one of the things that strikes me as as interesting with the Harry Potter books is that a number of Christian schools really would not allow them either to be read by their students in school, would not allow them into their libraries, at least in our circle. And I struggled with that because I didn't understand why Harry Potter was not allowed, but C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles was, both of which make use of magic as a mode for moving the story forward. Now, as I've wrestled with this, I think I do see one distinction in that, it's very rare in the Narnia series when the children protagonists actually use magical powers. And, and, and when they do, the main one I can think of is when Lucy is on the island with the invisible people in, uh, I believe it's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And she chooses to use the wizard's magic, which actually causes problems because she did instead of just trusting Aslan. But I still think maybe we're overselling it that because, for example, if we were to take Harry Potter... And we were to move him from Hogwarts School of Wizardry to the Hogwarts School of Nuclear Molecular Rearrangement in the year 2572. And he had an Omni device that he could simply point and create light or whatever. And it was purely science fiction. The story could be exactly the same. And it would be technology, so that would be okay. And so, I think from a literature standpoint, maybe too much is being made of the witchcraft element. However, I do find it at least interesting and worthy of note that, let's say at a Barnes and Nobles or a Borders, when Harry Potter would come out, it was not uncommon that because of the celebration of, oh, it's a new Harry Potter book and you know you're going to have a lot of people coming in who are getting interested, you would have the Harry Potter book set up right next to books like. How to Be a Teenage Witch or The Teenager Spellbook, which in that case, Harry Potter seems to be becoming somewhat of a gateway into the forbidden arts of magic. And for that reason, I think there's at least a reason to stop and pause as a Christian and ask, What am I doing with this? How am I acknowledging the greater cultural reality of the fact that any kind of interest like this does become a gateway?
1: I think your point's very valid because I think that's what a lot of the parents were very nervous about their students and their children being exposed to Harry Potter. I saw families where aunts let their children read it, but then you know the other side of the family refused to have Harry Potter even mentioned in the household. However, I would argue that Harry Potter the culture might see it that way but that wasn't its true intention J.K. Rowling clearly says after this series has come out that she didn't mention a Christian because she thought it was so obvious the Christian symbolism and I mean there's it's just dripping with you know references to Christ and biblical stories I mean the obvious one is Harry Potter and all his friends celebrate Christmas every single book and it's known as being the happy time cuz Harry Potter gets to Interact with the Weasleys for the, you know, and that's his true family. Also, as we go on and we get into the more darker things that begin to attack Harry, he learns this new spell which is able to attack or to defeat the dark arts, which is the Patronus. And it takes on the form of a stag, which is known in historical Christianity as being a symbol for Christ. But the most interesting thing is when you read the very last one, Spoiler alert, when the last Harry Potter book came out, everyone was debating, is he going to die or is he not going to die? And the answer is both. Harry Potter ends up giving up his life for his friends. And there's Bible verse. No greater love has one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. John 15, 13. Now, kind of the funny thing is, is he actually comes back to life. Hmm sounds a little familiar. I don't know about you, Joe, but that sounds a lot like the story of the resurrection.
0: Clearly, there is some good stuff that we can pull out of Harry Potter. At the very least, we see a whole lot of Christian themes that even really opens up the doorway for being able to talk about how Harry Potter mirrors the Christ story and open up an opportunity for Harry Potter fans to maybe share the basis of some of the thematic elements like even something as simple as the fact that the stag is his defense against the evil, which is made up of a group of people who are essentially snakes, going back even to the story of the Garden of Eden in the Bible. What I find interesting, and, and this is going to be a little bit of a transition, is when I encounter people in the church, though, who take this Christian freedom that I think you and I are making use of when we talk about reading a book like The Da Vinci Code or a book like Harry Potter. And then they start applying it to books that maybe really seem to fall outside the realm of where Christians should be spending their time. And most notably in recent years, what has struck me as odd is when I encounter people who talk very openly about how much they're enjoying the book The Fifty Shades of Grey. I believe now there has been maybe two more books after that and I know at least one movie has been made and I'm sure there's sequels on their way and this becomes kind of problematic because it seems like this is a book where evil isn't put in its place so to speak like a Harry Potter but rather that which scripture would refer to as evil is celebrated is treated like the norm rather than something that needs to be conquered. Particularly, we're talking about, um, it's my understanding, and I will confess, I have not read this book, and I think that's part of what we're going to talk about, is, is that the kind of the main protagonist, Christian Grey, involves himself in an albeit consensual relationship with a young woman, uh, which gets involved into some pretty explicit experimental Elements. This is probably where we should give the disclaimer to the parents uh, listening with children that, unfortunately, this book delves into more adult topics, and so because of that, we're questioning: is this really something a person in the Christian church should be reading at all?
1: Now, Joe, I have not read the Fifty Shades of Grace trilogy either, but in America, it was pretty hard not to hear about it. It was a very, um, like we said, controversial book. Everyone was reading; it was in the bestseller, and it was just made news lines or it be made, you know, the media because of this tabooed topic where it talks about in very graphic detail, erotic scenes featuring bondage and dominance and submission. And we have a very divided camp of people who are very pro this book of it's, oh, it's just something to read for fun. We're reading it more for the storyline and the people who are there against it because of that aspect. However, you can't deny that it was very popular. It sold over 125 million copies worldwide as of June 2015, and it's been translated in 52 languages, and it set a record in the United Kingdom for being the fastest-selling paperback of all time. However, people are critiquing it. Maureen Dowd of the New York Times even quotes, I've never read anything so badly written that got published. It made Twilight look like War and Peace. And if you've read Twilight, it's it's not very well written, even though it does have moments where you're intrigued on what's going to happen in the love triangle.
0: And I find myself really kind of wrestling with this on one level, at least I was. And my introduction to the book was really, I mentioned first of all, hearing some ladies from church talking about it, but then also I encountered a high school student who was 18 reading the book during free time, challenged that student. And the response was, well, it's really easy to reject something before you've had a chance to read it. I feel like I need to read it first before I can legitimately critique and reject it. And there is a part of me that really accepts that that argument. and And so I dropped it because I knew the maturity of the student. As I've come to consider that more, however, I think that there are things that we simply don't need to engage in as people of God, we can look at things and we can tell pretty much whether or not it's appropriate. I'm going to go back to the use of the word uh, pornographia as a Greek word that we find in scripture in places, which today in English we think of images and videos, but those didn't exist when scripture was written, but rather it was talking about sexually graphic writing, which is exactly what a book like this purports to be and i don't think anybody who has read it is going to deny that so i feel like we're operating with accurate information and we get into is this book a warning against behavior that pulls away from the proper sexuality that god intends or is it one that celebrates an aberration of that and if we're aware that it's celebrating the aberration of that rather than simply being a warning such as a harry potter might be against evil and darkness and so forth we're now in a realm where I question whether or not it's really necessitates our time to take a look at it. I wonder how many people who took time to read it for the sake of not rejecting something until they've had time to read it have actually engaged in some sort of debate against it after that also. So the question is, what really are the motivations that one is getting into it and how beneficial is that merely in one's growth and one's relationship as far as that goes? Now, I'm going to submit to you that when we question does it celebrate or does it a warning that coinciding with the release of the book and its popularity, there were a number of, of injuries related to reenactments of things connected to the book that spiked in emergency room visits by like 50%. I always want to be careful about confusing correlation with causation, but in this case, It really does seem to have a bit of a direct correlation, which once again, I think goes back to point that this is something that celebrates rather than warns against. So at the end of the day, really, I turn back to some words of wisdom from St. Paul, who writes in Philippians, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. And so I'm going to come down on the side that this is really stepping beyond the realm of Christian freedom and really opening the doorway into areas that are destructive ultimately to people. And so while in our Christian freedom, we may read a book like a Harry Potter or a Da Vinci Code, and we may be able to walk away from it without having the very sense of our identity being attacked. It seems that this book and books like it are really hitting us in the heart of what we are as created beings, created sexual beings. The very first created relationship was one between a husband and a wife. And this gets away from where God would have us devote our energies, even in times of recreation. I suppose the reason that we read these kind of books is that ultimately we're looking for some sort of escape. Whether we're trying to escape from the mundane and find ourselves embroiled in an interesting mystery, or maybe it is that we're trying to escape from our everyday world and we're looking for a place where. There's just a little bit of magic, and we want to see the supernatural breakthrough because we know deep down that we are made for another world. Or perhaps we're looking for love. We're trying to be reminded of that perfect relationship where we are always cherished and always protected. And so we go looking wherever the world may offer it rather than recognizing there's something greater that we're destined for.
1: So you might be wondering, where is the eucatastrophe and all this pop culture literature, which, you know, may spark controversies or not. But when you think about it, Christ's resurrection is a mystery that we always kind of try to break down and understand, even though it's beyond our ability. But then with Christ, we have the relationship with him that we would, you know, use as the example in the Bible, the bridegroom and the church. And so when we think of these controversial literatures, maybe we should examine what is our purpose in reading them. Is it for a good mystery? Is it for entertainment? Or is it for something else? And that's something, that, you know, just to sit and ponder when you read these books. With episode 10 coming up in the next two weeks, we are going to be diving into the idea of putting your money where your stomach is and talking about the things that we purchase in the drive-thru line or other locations, are we agreeing with the company's political views or are we just looking for a good deal? Also keep in mind to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Into the Wardrobe podcast and if you have an extra moment, leave us a review. Join us on this quest to discover the catastrophe hidden in the worlds around us as we explore life, imagination, and everything. Narnia is just one of the many worlds visited by Lewis's literary children. Who knows where we'll end up when we jump into the wardrobe.